0: Hello, my name is Ran and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode we interview inspiring movers, thinkers and teachers on how they find their flow and much, much more. I hope you're having a great day so far. It's getting really cold down here in Melbourne, at least I think so. I'm probably not the best person to ask. Anyway, the studio renovations are coming along really well. We've got some flooring down, so we're getting near the end stages. Hopefully we'll get some electricity in there soon and we can actually start to use it. But it's coming along really well. I'm really excited. I better get on with today's episode. This episode is a recorded conversation between myself, my wife and co-host Joe Stewart and Lucy Kanani. Lucy has been a yoga teacher for many years having studied at the Kripalu Center in Massachusetts, USA and has trained with many yoga luminaries such as Michael de Manencore, Indira and A.G. Mohan, Amy Weintraub, Leslie Kamenoff and Richard Miller. As we'll hear in this episode, she's had many interesting occupations over her life, including teaching scuba diving, managing sales teams for radio stations, and eventually becoming the CEO of Rojan North America, a branch of a global training and consulting firm specializing in face-to-face communication. You may have noticed a constant theme in her line of work, it is that of communication, which happens to be the subject of this episode. Lucy and her co-writer Jill Danks have recently released their book Connecting Conscious Communication for Yoga Teachers and Therapists. It's a fantastic tome on improving communication skills for yoga teachers and as someone who can barely string three words together without intensive editing, I'm finding it incredibly informative. It's given me plenty to think about in how I present a class and the chapters are divided up nicely so I can read a chapter and then try out what I've just learned when I'm teaching. K Tribe, who was on our last episode, has said that she's making it a required reading of the yoga teacher training she facilitates, so I think it's an incredibly important resource for anyone teaching yoga. And I guess on a more personal note, I feel yoga is this expansive thing, and in teaching it we're taking from this background of philosophy, anatomy, and movement, and we need to convey all of this information in a way that's compelling and informative, but doesn't overwhelm or or take the yogi too far out of a state of mindfulness or presence. So it's really important to communicate all of this as effectively as we possibly can. Now, Lucy was extremely generous and gave us a copy of the book to give away to one lucky listener. I'll leave a link in our show notes for you to enter the competition. It's really easy. Just fill out the form and answer the question that Lucy asks near the end of the episode. Now, one note, this offer is only available to residents of Australia, as we can only afford to send this off to an Australian address. We will be announcing the winner in our next episode, which will come out in a fortnight, so stay tuned for that. That is more than enough talking from me, so let's get on with this interview with Lucy.
1: I'm a Melbourne girl. I'm the youngest of five and I was brought up in the eastern suburbs. I went to a school called Press Hill, which was in its day very progressive and did my uh, high school years there. Then I went on and studied science at Monash and I was majoring in chemistry and geology and then I became the education officer for the underwater club and I got involved in organizing all the training for the people who want to become scuba divers. I was already qualified by that stage as a scuba diver and in that process because I get kind of super involved in anything I do I went to all of the training sessions and I met all these people who were diving instructors who were also studying physical education and I started talking to them and and learning about what they were learning about and I started to think wow that really interests me a whole lot more than chemistry and geology. So I dropped out of Monash after a year and a half, much to my family's horror, and I switched across to what is now Victoria University, and my undergraduate degree is majoring, a science degree, but majoring in physical education. And I went there because I thought I wanted to specialise in outdoor education because at that stage I was a scuba diver and a bushwalker and a cross-country skier and that sort of thing. Very active, not very sporting, but very active. And I'd done ballet for about 10 years. So I sort of had some vague idea that maybe I'd take dance to people with disabilities, didn't really know what that meant, but, you know, that sort of thing. But during the time that I was at Footscray, I became very interested in sports psychology, So having gone sort of all pure sciences in high school and then into university, suddenly I was being in this program being exposed to sociology and philosophy and psychology and I found it really interesting and engaging. So I applied for and got into a master's in sports psychology. But I needed to take some time to earn some money to support myself. And I went into the commercial world and I worked as a medical rep for a pharmaceutical company for a year, which is really boring. Uh, <laughs> I it. And then I was actually driving around in my car in between meeting doctors and I heard an ad on the radio to be a sales executive for a a radio station so I applied for that job and I became a sales representative for a commercial radio station and then spent about 10 years in commercial radio and sales and then into sales management oh wow <laughs> <laughs> and oh and I will say I lived in Melbourne and then I went with them to Sydney and then back to to, then to Canberra and then back to Melbourne so if yeah. you were back to a earlier part of that career trajectory mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really interested in
2: communication as a scuba diver. Instructor, because I imagine you have to have this balance of like you probably can't use words because you're underwater, right. and you've got to be clear with people, yeah. and there's that sense of you don't want to freak people out. But if there is something that people really do need to be aware of as a potential danger, you want to communicate that clearly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You had uh, shared that sort of, uh, that idea of that question and it was wonderful because it really made me think about it. And one thing that uh, Jill and I talk about in our book is that to help communication be effective, it needs to... To help it to be effective, it helps if people understand what you're saying. And what will help with understanding is if there is a kind of a structure to what you're saying. So in a class, it would be a clear beginning, middle and end, or in a one-on-one session. But in any communication, there does need to also be a kind of a clear structure. And um, at its sort of very, very base, any communication requires you to prepare the person you're talking to to receive what you're going to tell them, then to deliver what you're going to tell them and then to make sure that they've received and understood it. So if you can imagine you and I are underwater and you're my student and I want to change direction, I have to get your attention. So I make sure you're looking at me then I give you the hand signal to say, we want to go this way. And then I ask with an okay signal, have you received and understood? And you answer me with an okay signal. And that um, spoiled that
2: whole potential <laughs> paragraph oh, should we go over here now? Are you feeling okay with that? Yep, I'm yeah. okay
1: with that. Let's go into like an arm pad and a hand okay. gesture. Yeah. Well, but the other thing too is that there's sort of a parallel is that when I felt very strongly when I was a diving instructor that people were putting... It's a bit dramatic, but their life in my hands. So you know, sometimes we were diving reasonably deep, ten to twenty meters underwater, they were new to the whole experience. And so they needed to feel safe. And I think that's the same in a yoga class and definitely Mm -hmm. in a one-on-one situation. If you if people don't feel safe, if they don't trust you, then they're not going to open up to you and you're not going to be able to help them as their their teacher. So as a diving instructor, I was probably on the more authoritative end than I would be as a yoga teacher. Mm. Well, I think the stakes are a bit higher. The stakes are high. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So there wasn't really a question of people saying, oh, what, what, where might I go? Because we were a group and the group had to stay together. And it was my job to shepherd people and to communicate that very clearly. So...
2: Well, one of yeah, the reasons same. I asked that is because I noticed the difference in my own communication when I went from just teaching yoga on the ground to teaching aerial yoga and I had to be yeah. a bit more of a disciplinarian as well. Yes. And usually on the mat I would give people quite a bit of space to do their own thing, but mm-hmm. like someone could fall out and hurt themselves really seriously if they do mm-hmm. their own thing in the mm-hmm. fabric. So I was much more on that note, we're all doing this.
1: Yeah. You can
2: choose this option if that doesn't suit you, but you can't just experiment and play around like this is what we're doing.
1: I love that, yeah. I see yeah, that. It, I see it's that. Not not yeah.
2: necessarily been an easy transition. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I actually find it quite exhausting to be right. that group focus holder right. sometimes, right. especially if people are a little bit distracted or Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, guess but I, I hear what you're saying there. I haven't role. done aerial
1: yoga, but I can imagine you definitely don't want people falling out. Too, right? No.
2: <laughs> <S or laughs> and sometimes as well like cuz I want people to feel safe as well, so mm-hmm. I'll use a tone of voice that's strong Warm, yes, but sometimes I'll yes. accidentally just say it how I'm feeling, like don't do that, mm-hmm. and then afterwards I'll, I'll be like, Oh, oops, I shouldn't have used that tone of voice in my head. Mm. But then I've also been thinking, Well, maybe that person needed that slightly sharper tone. I would agree, I I agree. yeah
0: Just to relate what you said about the, the scuba diving, and you know, once you've given them the instruction, you check that they've received the instruction. Mm. I'm just thinking, maybe in, in yoga, it's not always that clear whether they've received your instruction perhaps in one sense if they've done the the movement that you've requested Mm -hmm. but i guess there is a possibility that they haven't actually received the instruction with the full intent
2: say you'll give a general instruction to modify if you have an injury Mm -hmm. and you can't quite be sure if someone's modifying for an injury or they genuinely haven't understood Mm -hmm. the next phase of the movement Mm -hmm. especially if they're doing something quite different yeah
0: yeah
1: I mean, um, I I think uh, it's a it's a it's actually an interesting point and a, and one that needs a little bit of unpacking. I mm-hmm. would say, because you know when we teach yoga, it's not where people should necessarily feel they have to do what Mm. we're telling them to do so so even if somebody is physically able on that particular day to move into a pose for example they may choose not to for a reason that Mm. is not because of their physical body Mm. for I I mean I don't know I can't think of a specific example yeah like they are just a bit tired that day yeah Mm. yeah or or there may be something that they're you know like I have knee problems for example so Mm. you know I modify all the time and I I usually tell the teacher beforehand because I don't want them to feel bad that I'm ignoring <laughs> the mm. guidance and they might therefore think i think there's something wrong with it which is not the case i'm just looking after my body's needs and so that's just say with asana but when you start talking about pranayama or, or meditation yeah. how can yeah. you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. how do you engage your bhanga i don't know <laughs> <laughs> so, so i there is this receive and understood in the sense of in Scuba diving—it's about personal safety, In mm-hmm. aerial yoga—it's about absolutely about safety. I think in yoga, it's hard to find the right word. Whether it's directive, definitive, but authoritative, but it all—that can sound all a bit too bossy mm. and telling. It's more about offering, but in a way that is confident, so that they will be encouraged perhaps to explore something new they might not have, or mm-hmm. an edge for them on that day. Sometimes yeah. as well, there's
2: that instruction that. The, the teacher will say, you know, a lot of times, pretty much every class, and then one day it will just click. Mm. And because I've had that experience when mm. someone will say, oh, that thing that you said today just made so much sense. And in my mind I'm thinking, I feel
1: like I say that every class. Right. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So it's, so it's when they're ready to, to hear it, yeah. The other thing too is that there are choices about how you teach a group class. I mean, there are some classes and, in fact, whole sort of studios where the energy is that in The classes are all very silent, but that isn't always appropriate, depends on the class. So, you know, I taught very regularly a class for a gentle yoga for healing and people in my class were there because either they had chronic health issues, they had chronic pain issues that were undiagnosed, they are recovering from injury or surgery or something like that. And I would want them to ask questions. I, I would say to them, if you don't understand something I'm saying, please ask. Because mm-hmm. chances are somebody else didn't understand it as well. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Everyone will appreciate that clarification. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, then, and then you do need to manage it, though, because you don't want a whole lot of yabbering mm-hmm. either. But if you have people feel comfortable, the other thing, of course, is getting off your mat and getting out into the room and checking in with people mm-hmm. and just saying, how is that for mm-hmm. you? Or... Are you comfortable with that or can I help In Can I get you a block or, you know, whatever it might be? And those little interactions can be really helpful that don't interrupt, that don't intrude on anybody else's practice. And there'd be some questions that
2: people wouldn't feel like sharing with the entire group, Mm -hmm. but they would share if you were close enough that they just ask you quietly yeah so to take a little detour back to your working <laughs> life you're this. you are you still the ceo of rogan north america no,
1: everything that you do no i'm not no i have retired oh, no. ah. I don't, actually i don't know if you call it that but i joined rogan in the early 90s here in australia And then I moved after a year or so to the New York office. Rogen was actually founded in the US in the 1960s and run by Peter Rogen, the founder, who's a phenomenal individual. And if... He was a yogi. We would think of him as being a swami or a master of communication, let's just say. And he ran his own business for a while. And then in the 80s, he offered it to other people to start working with it in other countries. And a gentleman by the name of Neil Flett bought it in Australia, bought the rights for Australia, New Zealand, and then the worldwide rights. So for quite a while, Rojan was head office out of Sydney but then grew back out into the world, including New York. So um, I went there in the, uh, in the early 90s and then ended up running the North American operation and we grew in New York and Chicago and Boston and uh, San Francisco and we had an office in Toronto. And also I was very lucky to travel a lot. So even though our clients were head office in the US, in New York and predominantly banking and finance clients, they would often want us to travel out and do the work in their in their other offices. So with Rojan was a consulting firm consulting and training firm in person-to-person communication specifically in the corporate sector we ran programs and did training in things like presentation skills and selling skills and negotiation skills and even telephone skills and media skills and so forth and as the CEO I ended up doing a lot more coaching work because I tended to work with the CEOs of all of these large firms although it's certainly the higher the senior level people and so I did less of the training workshops and then more of the coaching. So that was sort of part of my journey. But I will say that in all of the travel that I did and all the communication skills training and in all the different sectors of business, it's amazing to me whatever level of seniority is people are people are people. And they all communicate fundamentally the same way. The principles still apply. And and that's what's been really exciting about bringing all this depth of knowledge and experience across into the world of yoga and observing it first and then starting to apply it and then starting to teach it. It's still just as true in the yoga world as it was in the corporate world. And so, so. when did you discover yoga as a practitioner? For me, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when I went to New York, I was a single person and kind of a very career-focused, driven, workaholic, perfectionist. And I loved my life in New York and I worked seven days a week and all that sort of stuff. And then in uh, 98, I met the man of my dreams and ended up, we were married within about a year and I moved out to the country or just out of New York City in a a town in Connecticut. And I started to sort of meet new people in community. And in fact, uh, one of his good friends introduced me to yoga. So it was the late 90s and she took me to a class and I started with one class a week and I was still working full time. And then I went back to four days a week and then I got pregnant and went to three days a week and, you know, and so forth. I, I forgot to say my husband was a widower, so I actually inherited two children. So when I married him, I became a mother overnight of a, um, a nine and a seven-year-old. And then we had a third child pretty quickly. So I was starting my yoga classes. Then the teacher came to our home. It started because my husband said that he would try yoga if she she would come to our home and we had space in our house. I teach people like that. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) like, if they come to me, I'll do it. But they lasted for about three weeks. So we started off, I think our class started at seven on a Friday morning so he could do it. Before he went to work and like I said it lasted about three weeks so then I started inviting other people and then I had a regular group that came although well, it started a bit later in the morning and then my teacher Herma Hale who is a beautiful sound like an angel incarnate as so many yoga teachers are truly inspirational she was for me when I was doing two or three classes a week she said you know why don't you come with me to my teacher's class So I had the great honor of going to learn with a woman, Mary Sinclair, who had actually learnt directly. Oh, I forgot to say this is a Iyengar style. And Mary had trained with Mr. Iyengar. And so I started going to her class. And so she was teaching teachers, but I wasn't a teacher in training. I was just amongst these, these practitioners. And so that was wonderful. And... Concurrent with all of it, so this sort of, I've got all a bit jumbled here, but... I so know I'm keeping up. Are you? You yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Your <laughs> You're still working, doing more yoga. Right, exactly. Then in about 2002, for family reasons, first Ramesh's mother in India, so my husband Ramesh is Indian, immigrated into the States in the 70s, so he's sort of American. His mother became unwell, and one of the best things to help a, an Indian grandmother Feel better is to take her youngest grandchild to show off to all of her friends. (laughs) (laughs) So I traveled. Grandchildren are the best medicine. (laughs) I took my not quite two year old to India and she got well and truly out of bed then and went and showed her off to all her friends. (laughs) It was actually the first time I ever experienced laughing yoga Mm -hmm. because she belonged to a laughing club and, and, Uh and got up and went down early in the morning to her local. So was park this like around it, Mumbai or? Yeah, in Mumbai itself, Like the original yeah. Laughing Club? Yeah, probably it was. It, on yeah. the beach? Um, yeah, yeah, well, so it was. it's on a park on the, on yeah, the beach, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yes. wow. <laughs> I, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't think about that. Yeah, they loved it when I bought Rebecca. So my my daughter, who, as I said, was uh, not quite too they had it was really the impetus for a lot of the laughter in that particular session of the laughing (laughs) yoga night because all outdoors and all standing up and so I went to to be with her and then I came back and then my father became unwell here and so I needed to take a bit more time off and so I decided to take six months off and during that time I really decided it was time to focus on full-time parenting of, of both back my youngest, but my other two children as well. And so I retired. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I actually haven't really said that before, but it is what I did. And then the next eight years or so was focused fully on parenting and all my children have learning disabilities and I became fairly involved in that whole world and helped advocate for them and parents of kids with learning disabilities, which is Not a bad word in America, that is... That's the word. That's the word. Yeah, I know in Australia, it's not described as that, but that's how they're described. And I became super involved in all of that. I also became quite unwell. I had a a bunch of health issues that for a number of years, I really tried to address with complementary medical practices, alternative healing practices. And after three or four years of that, my husband, who's wonderful, said, that's great. I respect that you believe in these things, but you're not getting any better. So can we... Try something else. So I found a really good GP who partnered with and then I got a whole lot of diagnoses and I had a whole lot of stuff wrong with me that did need some prescription drug interventions and, and so forth. And so over the next two years or so we got good diagnoses and then I got to the point where I would say I wasn't sick anymore which is really good um (laughs) yeah I'd been uh, pretty unwell and yoga had sustained me through a lot of that but it wasn't much fun
2: especially since you were taking care of a lot of other people Uh, through that time as well yeah yeah and then in
1: 2009 a Indian friend of ours had been really talking a lot to me about doing this particular program weekend training program which I eventually decided to do and in this program they recommended that you committed, what they were training was basically a a breathing practice, breathing pranayama practice, and their strong recommendation was that you do it every day for 90 days without fail, more or less, and I did, and after that three months, I, I mean, I would say it changed my life, basically, because, as I said, I wasn't sick anymore, but... I but it sounds like you weren't feeling great. Yeah, I was great, yeah. yeah. And I became really well wow. and vibrant and had energy again and life force, you know, the whole thing. And yeah. I thought, wow, maybe there's really something to yoga. It's not just about going to classes and enjoying making shapes with my body and, you know, and, and learning a little bit. At that point in my yoga, even though I've been practicing for so many years, I didn't really know very much about pranayama and not very much about meditation other than my own sort of self-taught process. And yeah so I thought oh, I think I'd like to study and so like a lot of people I think who come to yoga teacher training it wasn't necessarily to become a teacher it really was to become to learn more about yoga and mm-hmm. philosophy and practices and for where I was living in my life circumstances what ended up being the best place for, for me to do my training was the Kripalu Center which is in southern Massachusetts. I did a 200-hour training that was two 12-day intensive blocks and I had a two or three month break in between, and it changed my life again. In another, I mean, it was absolutely phenomenal. My teachers were incredible, and the place is amazing. Like it has an energy about it. Too. It's pretty famous. It's pretty yeah. famous. I, I sort of have this saying: a, a day in is like a week anywhere else, and a week is like a month. And it is phenomenal. Yeah, the history of the land goes way back through the Native American history and. Yeah, it's incredible. So what was interesting for me in my journey was I still, after the first 12 days, was like, this is good. I'm learning a lot about us now. I'm learning about that. I mean, I was lucky for the anatomy and physiology because I had a phys ed degree. I already kind of really knew all that, which was which was help, helpful. Um, but it was one of our pieces of homework was that we had to, you know, design a class and teach it and record ourselves and submit it for our assessment. So me being me, I thought I'd like to practice. So what I'll do is I'll I sent out an email to my circle of friends, and I said, "You know, I'm learning to be a yoga teacher, and I'd like to run some practice classes. These are three times during the week I could run a class that suit me. Let me know what suits you, and then I'll pick a time." Well, everybody responded, and <laughs> I ended up running three classes a week. Uh-huh. And, Always the yoga uh- <laughs> <laughs> And I did it for for about two months. I was doing about three classes a week with two to five people, you know, small groups. And it was actually then that I totally fell in love with teaching yoga. And it was this is going to sound a bit strange, but it was by being really fully present and I mean of course I had a daily very committed daily practice at that time. When I was teaching, I actually oftentimes would be, you know, leading things and saying things. And I think, where did that come from? Like, it wasn't really me talking. Oh, no, I think
2: that that makes total sense. Like, that's when it feels like it's really flowing, when it's not just the cogs whirring in your brain to make words, when it just all flows out of you.
1: Yeah. I really felt at that point yoga was so much part of my life. It was part of who I was. And everything I teach is really about sharing what I love. You know, scuba diving was, communications was. I mean, I loved it when I was teaching with and it was my bliss and then now yoga and then now yoga and communication yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> each thing is just
2: fed into the has. next thing yeah, yeah that's I'm actually so blessed. one practice exercise that you wrote about in mm-hmm. your book as a suggestion which i haven't actually done yet but mm-hmm. i think is a great idea for teachers of all levels yeah. to video yourself Teaching, but then also to practice to your own video yeah. because I see myself teaching like I've had that video before, mm-hmm. and I think it's easy to get caught up in the like, oh look at that face I made, or mm-hmm. be on that surface level, but to actually practice to yourself and see if your instructions make sense mm-hmm. as a practitioner,
1: yeah. not
2: just an observer.
1: I yes. think it's a great exercise and a great idea. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really worthwhile doing. Another exercise, actually, that I do in my, uh, you know, I have a a workshop for communication skills for teaching yoga classes is... I don't know if I want to tell you because it's a bit of a surprise when I do, but anyway, um, (laughs) I will tell you, is that I have the students lead a class where the students are blindfolded. Oh, yes. Yeah. So the feedback I get is it's cool doing both. (laughs) Actually, it's cool being blindfolded. It's really, I don't know if you've ever done a class blindfolded, but it's... Yes, I have. yeah, Yeah, Yeah. It's another experience. But it really puts the focus on your languaging and how clearly you're communicating and and of course communication is so much more than just words Mm. so we discuss that in our book if in fact only seven percent of the impact of any communication is the words so much more of it is how it's said and then who is is saying it which is how that's perceived is really how they're saying it so it all comes down to the how So not suggesting you don't want the visual, but for honing your own languaging skills. So to record yourself, but then listen to your own recording without watching any video though. And I've had blind students in my class. So
2: to have already honed that skill of not just relying on the easy Mm. visual, just serve Mm. a really broad range of people. Mm. And I know Mm. that other people like to practice with their eyes closed. Absolutely. As well. So yeah.
1: Yeah. It will
2: serve the non-visual learners.
1: Yes. I was actually just about to say that is the other thing is everybody learns differently and receives information and processes differently. So even if you say connect with the earth through the soles of your feet and then raise your arms towards the sky, some people will go like this and some people will go like this, you know yeah or when people are
2: lying down and you say lift your arms up some people would point to the ceiling above and some people would point to the wall
1: behind yeah same thing exactly exactly so sometimes I'm asked should you teach with your eyes open or closed and because some you know people respond to what they see often much more than what they hear if you are if you want to encourage people to practice with their eyes closed then you would close your eyes but then You've got to be a little sneaky and work out how to actually have your eyes open, but have them look like they're closed. Stop so you can sit with them closed to <laughs> set the vibe, and then sneak them open again. Yeah, but even a little open because you've got peripheral vision mm-hmm. and everything, and you can get a sense of what people are doing. I you mean, know, it's the most important thing is to have your attention on the students, not mm-hmm. on yourself. And if your eyes are closed, then it can be a little much on yourself. So anyway, we we'll go off in lots of directions mm-hmm. there. <laughs> yeah,
2: and so we've mentioned the book a couple of
1: times mm-hmm. and
2: it really seems like accumulation of the teaching of the classes that you've done and your work in the corporate world and all of your other education and communication what was the process of writing the book like did it all just flow out easily or was it a little
1: bit more um <laughs> that rewriting a- <laughs> redrafting and strategizing <laughs> and reorganizing all of that information so the story of the book actually requires me to tell you a little bit about Jill my writing partner So completely amazingly and coincidentally, we both worked in commercial radio in sales and sales management at the same time against each other, although we didn't know each other. (laughs) And then she joined Rojan in Melbourne and about a year later, I joined Rojan in Sydney. So we were colleagues, but in different offices. So we didn't know each other well, but we worked together. Then I went to New York and then a couple of years later, she went to London. So still working with Rojan. We were worldwide partners together, so we, you know, meet at meetings and so forth, and sometimes we'd share with, you know, client information, but we didn't know each other for other than professionally. And then I retired, as I mentioned, into my family. She too sort of semi-retired and started doing more consulting work only, and where she focused her energy was in she sort of transitioned from communications consulting into executive consulting, but then studied and moved into transformational. Uh, Sorry, not consulting, coaching, coaching, I meant to say executive coaching and then into transformational coaching and then into transpersonal coaching and so and she did an enormous amount of study and practice in that journey she also became a meditation teacher and studied tantra tantric philosophy and this was actually predominantly in in europe too she was based in the uk and then france and so that was her journey and then romance love brought her back to australia and i had moved to australia in january of 2011 and in about october of 2011 i was in a coffee shop in Cameray near my local yoga studio and I hear this voice and this voice said Lucy Strasser that's my maiden name is that you and I turned around <laughs> <laughs> I was like Jill Danks is that you <laughs> and so we were like what I mean we like wow and we had a coffee and then we had another coffee and then we had lunch and we got talking and we learned about each other's life's journey and she became really interested in yoga. And so then she did study the diploma at the Yoga Institute and really loved it. And then she went on and studied the advanced diploma. And so the Yoga Institute is the main place that I teach. Both uh, I was teaching community classes there, but that's where I teach the communication skills training. And so she studied in that program and I was teaching in that program. We were around each other. She also became involved, I was concurrent with all of this on the board of the Yoga Foundation, which is, I don't know if you've heard of that's that. My- Michael, that's right, he founded it, yes, that's right, yeah, so I joined, soon after I arrived in Australia, I joined that board as well, and Jill became involved in that, so we got to know each other a little bit more there as well, and then it would have been early 2015, Michael and she were in conversation one day, and she was talking about coaching communication skills. And he said, oh, that sounds interesting. I wonder if that's something that maybe we could offer, you know, in, as a workshop, as a half day or a day or a weekend or whatever. And would you be interested in creating and training something like that? And Jill said, I don't know, I'll, I'll think about it. So. Jill went away and thought about it, which means that she wrote a 50-page document. That's how Jill thinks. (laughs) And she sent it to me and she said, this is what Michael's asked me to do. What do you think? Let me know. And I was a bit consumed at the time. There were some family health issues and things that I needed to attend to. And I said, look, I'm sorry, Jill, can't look at it. You go ahead, but I trust you implicitly, whatever. I'm sure it's great. And she said, it's okay. There's no rush. That's fine. Just when you get to it. So a couple of months later... June July I finally was able to read it and I read it and I thought yeah it's good but it's not enough significantly different to what because she wasn't across everything I was teaching in my three-day program for interpersonal communication skills and so I rang her nervously to tell her that (laughs) because I respect her so much and I said so I've read it and she said don't say anything I don't care what you think she said I've got an idea and I said what's that and she said how would you like to write a book together? ah. Okay. I said, well, I actually have two first reactions. (laughs) And she said, what's that? And I said, well, my first first reaction is that for every so often in my life, I confer with a psychic-ish kind of person. And I had been told by a number of people that I was going to write a book. And, you know, each time they've told me, I've like, okay, right, okay, what's the topic? Really? Am I, you know, me? Mm-hmm. So that's interesting, number one. My second first reaction is, I'm not a writer you know I can't (laughs) write and she said that's okay you talk and I'll write (laughs) and and it's kind of how we began you know so the process began with me really talking her through everything I trained in these workshops that I've designed which was a lot of material she was very familiar with because it was steeped in the Rojan wisdom and she captured it and so she would write it and then I would review it and rewrite parts of it and we'd sort of to and fro so for the first nearly two years we committed to work together every Monday for about four hours and we only wrote if we were together especially since I was talking and, and she, she was, was writing, writing. Yeah. so it was a you know it was something that we were doing but it wasn't our primary focus and I was busy as my teaching my family and everything but then by May of 2017 we got to the point where we had created what we felt was our first draft and so we sent it off to about 10 first readers We have great colleagues here in Australia and also some in the US who were all, eight of them were teacher trainers or yoga therapist trainers. So Lee Blaskey, Janet, Michael Domanapol were three of the people who were the first readers and two professional authors read it as well, including Neil Flett. So Neil Flett, who'd been our teacher and mentor, (laughs) read it and he's written a number of books too. And we got feedback from everybody and the feedback predominantly was, this is great, this is substantial, this is worthy of continuing we think it will be very helpful for teachers in training and teachers beyond and yoga therapists in training however it's too this too much too, it's long. Just too long you know there's too much in here and so we cut it in half so there's actually a second book that's in first draft form sort of put to the side, which we're going to start soon now that this is published. And once that happened, so that was sort of May, June, and by this stage, we'd set March this year to be our end game. And I will just say about writing a book is that writing a book and publishing a book are really different activities.
2: So hearing about the process of you talking Mm. and Jill writing Mm -hmm. really makes sense because Mm. I was just thinking about what a mental leap it must be to produce a written text Mm. about verbal communication Mm. for a physical and and an energetic practice Mm. and to make it all make sense and not be four steps removed from the actual experience
1: Mm. you know the other really important part of the process was that we were writing this material and then in effect i was utilizing it in the workshops and then observing and I have a whole page always in my train, my own trainer manual that says notes to self and I'm always making notes about things that worked or didn't work or I could do differently next time. So we were feeding that back into the book. So it's very circular uh, what we were doing and we were both doing it in our coaching practices as well. So we're both mentors and coaches and it's a really interesting process to write with another person and yet have the book feel as if it's one voice it really it does, does. Yeah. yeah it's very mm. coherent oh it does sound yeah, like yeah, it's my absolutely. voice. It? Mm. absolutely yeah, yeah 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 that was our goal so the process also was a big part of it was me talking her writing but then it shifted to taking like we'd write on an area that we felt we knew more about or, or we'd say you take this topic and I'll take this topic and then we'd write and then swap and swap and swap and you have to kind of take your ego completely out of the room because you know we both want the best possible offering it's not about Jill being right or me being right and
0: mm-hmm. or know, who gets a, the most in the yeah. book <laughs> yeah, 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 I mean yeah. I
1: can't tell you who wrote what yeah yeah, right yeah, now. yeah I mean each word has been touched by both of us there's yeah no doubt about it yeah yeah but there's areas that she has much more experience it's in me and, and vice versa I
2: guess as well there's some the things that feel so obvious to you that you don't necessarily communicate them in words okay, and another yeah. person can look at that and see those gaps see yeah. those
1: unspoken things that actually do need to be spelt out for someone else and Jill's really really good at that she's really good at unpacking things and breaking them down into their micros yeah yeah
2: So one thing that I really loved in the book, because it's so easy as anyone, or as a yoga teacher, to get really caught up in the stuff that you're not doing well and really beat yourself up out of that, about how there's such a focus on everyone's unique, everyone has a different voice, and really self-compassion has to be a really big part of this practice. And so there's this really beautiful section in your closing thoughts chapter There'll always be some aspect of your communication to hone or something new to learn. There'll always be students and situations that challenge you. These will most likely be your greatest teachers. As you're practicing communication focused self-study, please also practice self-compassion as well as an appreciation for what you're doing well. Being an effective communicator requires appropriate knowledge, good skills, and lots of practice. It also requires a loving heart for your students and yourself. And I just really felt like that shone through the book. Like mm-hmm. it was a really yeah. nurturing, loving tone, but also giving people some building blocks and some skills to be a better communicator. Like that's what the book's
1: about. I'm so glad I feel teary. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's what you received because that was our intention entirely. Oh. Yeah. And yeah. so,
2: are there any conscious strategies to address not just different levels of experience, but different communicators and different
1: personality mm-hmm. types? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's it, it's in all of the teaching is appreciating that everybody is different. Yeah. yeah. So at the beginning, I said people are people are people. Yes. And everybody is different. And there's absolutely no wrong or right, good or bad, better or worse in any of those. So, for example, we talk in one area about communication styles. And yeah, that was a really interesting chapter because it's yeah. something I hadn't ever thought about. Great. Right. Good. Yeah. So there was questionnaires in there that people can out and assess themselves which is their perception of how they're perceived but anyway (laughs) um.
2: (laughs) but you do break it down into really simple questions that you can answer and then add up at
1: the end oh, absolutely, so it's not yes. this
2: abstract sense oh, of no, how no, I no, perceive no. other people perceiving no. me like there's practical questions understand.
1: but when I use that in my workshops people say oh how do you want me to answer this do you want me to answer this as a yoga teacher or as a mother or as a managing director in my company or which me do you want me to answer it which is a great question. Mm. That's a great question. Why don't you decide? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it stands with you. <laughs> yes.
2: If you are showing a really different side of yourself as a yoga teacher to how mm. you actually
1: perceive yourself, what's that saying? What does that say? Right, right. At the very beginning of the book, we have our definition of effective communication, which was originally created by Peter Rogen in the 1960s. And over all of the years of Rogen existing as an organization, Many of us tried to improve on that definition and none of us could. We were challenged in our masterclasses as uh, consultants. We were challenged and we never could. And then I had the great good fortune of meeting with Peter in 2016 and where I wanted to tell him about Jules and my work and kind of get his blessing for the book. And also to thank him like almost like a... You know, a guru would like touch his feet and and bow to him for all that he created and all he gave to so many. So I asked him about the book and he said, I'm really happy for you to share everything that I taught you except for the definition Uh (laughs) ah well that's not going to work because the definition is it's almost like everything comes back to check against the definition Mm -hmm. a lot of people will say well why do you recommend that or why do you suggest that this is well if you go back to the definition that's what it means to be effective as a communicator he said okay let me think about it and he closed his eyes and he thought about it and through the definition and he said okay i've got one change and he he shared with me a change that so after all of these years what's that 60 years finally it was improved <laughs> by him for us for yoga the yoga world and the difference was about being conscious and awake ah. and, and so where we where we really spent time deepening into in, me in discussion with him and then jill and i really sat with that for a long time what does that mean and it's about uh, being awake is about being very present and aware of what's happening in there in the room, in the room, whether it's one-on-one or whether it's 50 students in a, in a room, it's about being aware of what's happening. And so you can tailor yourself as you go along and being awake as opposed to being asleep awake, being awake, awake, that line of mm-hmm. thinking. Yeah. Not autopiling us. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Yeah. But conscious is about like, who are you? Who are you as a yoga teacher? And that's to your point about, well, if I'm asking what am I like as a whatever in the corporate world and what am I like as a, if there's a big difference. That's interesting, like mm. be curious about that. And so, and then the next question is, who are you on that day? And mm. that's about very much setting your intention for that session, for that class. And yeah, very much nice a really central question term. as a yogi as mm. well.
0: Mm.
2: Who yeah. am I?
1: Yeah. yeah. who yeah. am I in
0: this moment? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 I've, um, I use a phrase that never heard anybody else use, so I'll take it as mine, <laughs> is being in the swadhyaya of your communication. You know, because that is how you're perceived. You know, how you communicate is how you're perceived and received. Again, in the book, we talk about what makes a great yoga teacher. And I've brainstormed that and and popcorned it from all of my groups. And and we've shared a big list of descriptions of what it makes to be a great yoga teacher. And almost all of them are either communication skills or interpersonal skills.
2: None of them are like super flexibility or no, no.
1: being able to recite the sutras backwards. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's great if you can. Sorry. Michael Domenico can, so. Yeah. <laughs> and a great communicator. he's a great communicator. And a great communicator yeah. But yeah, it's not about being super flexible. Exactly.
2: Before reading your book, I just had a perception that it would be more for established teachers because if you were just starting out, then it would just be already all you could do to just keep the class going and give the mechanics of the pose but now that I've read it it seems that could actually be really great for brand new teachers as well because Mm. a lot of it is um, just clear communication strategies and kind of making good communication habits Mm. which would help so much to not have to undo some things later that were perhaps unconscious and not super helpful And Mm -hmm. also there was a whole lot in there about dealing with challenging situations. Mm -hmm. And if it hasn't come up in your teacher training and then it comes up in your class, what a great resource to go to to a book that just gives you a little bit of support and maybe Thank some you.
1: strategies. We've been really pleased with the feedback we've had from the supporters that we had who are our first readers. So people like Lee Blaschke and Michael and then my, one of my teachers, Devashi Stephen Hartman in the US, and have said this should be a recommended, if not a prescribed reading, for all teachers in training. We have very intentionally, exactly what you've said. I mean, you, it's not really a question, you've said what yeah. we've done. They <laughs> should you. have rephrased that. But <laughs> so it was a question. Uh, well, I'm glad that, that that is how you've received it. But having said that, we also wanted it to be a companion and a resource for people in their entire journey as a yoga teacher and a yoga therapist Mm -hmm. and we've had feedback from people who've bought the book since it's been available now in the last month or so very experienced teachers who are coming back and saying when I read this it was great because it reminded me or I'd completely forgotten about this or I didn't know that or Mm. yeah so I think sometimes things like communication
2: interpersonal skills perhaps aren't articulated Mm. especially in a really traditional training The instructions would be passed to you the way they've just been passed down the lineage and
1: yes, yeah. I mean, in my two hundred hour training at Kripalu, which is very conscious teaching and very heart centered and very beautiful, it was. Three hours, I think. I mean, in, in 200 hours, how much can you allocate to it when you've got you know, I anatomy mean, and physiology and the mm. philosophy and all the other things you have to teach? So it's not a criticism, but on the other hand, it's a pretty important part mm. of being an yeah. effective yoga teacher. So this is a resource. This is why we wanted to to create this, so... I, don't I think know. even if
2: you had 200 hours just on communication, you can't absorb all of it at once. Even if you, you did, You've kind of got to yeah. digest it and then, yeah. you know, let it settle, which is why it book's so good, because
1: you can come back to it. Come back to it, and yeah. And we've designed it so it feels spacious in the book itself and people can make their own notes and, and so forth. That was our intention as well.
0: Mm. And it is a beautiful book.
1: Oh, thank Uh, you. Yes. And so I've noticed a lot of the instructions in the book are really around
2: cultivating a yoga student's own inner communication skills. So gentle cues to help them kind of tune into their own subtle awareness of mind and body. Do you want to
1: explain a little bit about the concept of experiential words? Yoga, if you think about it, it's a personal experience, obviously, and uh, we encourage the use of experiential words to invite people to turn their focus inward so they can be with what's happening for them as they practice and whichever of the practices, whether it's asana or pranayama or meditation, you know, it is for me and I think for many, the, the process as you journey on your yogic path is to more and more become comfortable with who you are Absolutely, yeah. um, but you have to pay attention to how you are to learn about who you are, and we forget. You know, mm-hmm. our mind goes off in a million, you know, a million different directions—the monkey mind. And so, as a teacher, if you constantly are inviting people to be with their experience and using a variety of languaging, different words to do it, then that because hopefully will help them be there and more present for their. Their experience there, if, if you're talking about a class, duration of class.
2: And yeah. the other thing that struck me as well uh, we just spoke to Joe Buick, who's a trauma sensitive mm. yoga teacher how jarring it can be to tell someone what their experience is in a pose mm. to be mm. something like oh just relax into that delicious sensation when maybe it's feeling really painful for that absolutely. person absolutely yeah
1: yeah i listened to some of what <laughs> you had to say and i think i really like her i totally agree with everything she's saying yeah it's such a personal experience and who, who i mean it doesn't it not only who are you to tell somebody what they even suggest what they should be feeling it has this really potential for setting them up to well why aren't I feeling that what's mm-hmm. wrong with me you yeah. am I not doing it right do I just need to push a bit harder yeah and that's not what it's about at all
2: something that did also I just found this really interesting is you had another section on disempowering words mm-hmm. and a lot of them really correlated with the trauma sensitive approach which is invitational language mm-hmm. and so it was using phrases like maybe or if you'd like to mm-hmm. and The goal for both points of view is empowering a student in their experience, but I really got the sense of how using language that is a little bit too vague Mm. just is a bit confusing. Mm. So would you like to talk a little bit about finding that balance between not being coercive and not forcing someone into something with your words?
1: A lot of it's about variety. And so that's why we offer a lot of word ideas in our book. I'd like to come to a way to start to practice with that, a suggestion. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of it's about variety because different people respond to different kinds of words. And then it's about being what we touched on earlier about being authoritative or being confident, you know, coming across as confident. So, you know, I understand the languaging, like if it feels right for or maybe you'd like to or you could possibly try, you know, those sorts of softer yeah, yeah. lead-ins to what you're suggesting. They're fine. They're fine. They're not I know yeah. I have them in the we have them in the disempowering section. It's if you say them all the time. And yeah. that's that's the thing it's that we see with yoga teachers is a lot of people have some phrases that they use that are actually what we would call verbalized pauses. So there, Actually, it would be better to have no words there at all, and just a pause. Either a pause to allow people to process what you've just said, and then transition to what they want to do, or a pause that's even longer, which is to allow spaciousness for them to actually be in their experience.
2: Yeah, and it is. So. It's a different. Obviously, in a trauma-sensitive class, mm-hmm. there's a protocol yes. in that approach. And I guess we're talking about a general class. We could still have people who are affected by trauma that you wouldn't
1: even know about. I just want to say there, I think you're much better to assume everybody has some level of trauma. It's safer to assume. You know, I, I had a class that I taught four people for five years, so I knew them really well. And so there were some things that I might say to them that I wouldn't say to a class I didn't know as well or to a bigger general class that were a bit cheeky or a bit, you know, or I might be pushing them to an edge because I'm making that judgment call. And then I see by their response that they are happy for that or pleased for it. But I think you're always better to err on the side of, of caution. Absolutely. So whatever the specific training, which I haven't done trauma-sensitive yoga training, but I imagine it's appropriate for all classes. Absolutely.
2: Mm. And so I also really loved the section on catering to a diversity of experience and some of your language suggestions around using props and alternatives to phrases like more advanced, easier or harder versions of a pose. Could you take us through some of the phrases that you suggest?
1: So rather than say, if you'd like to push yourself today, you might use words like if you'd like to create a little more heat or travel a little closer to your edge for today, but listen to your body and see what feels right. So always with a sort of an offering and then a caveat. So uh, equally, and, and I will just say this, is that when I teach, I frequently invite people to see how gentle they can be with themselves mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. kind, mm-hmm. and that's actually harder for people.
2: Yeah, that's a bigger challenge for many people. Yeah,
1: yeah. and it's like, wow, nobody ever asked me to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, people usually ask me to you know, work harder and push harder and do more, and right. it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. And I think often mm-hmm. as well...
2: The ask for people to work harder and do more in a yoga class is unconscious on the Mm. part of the teacher Mm. because I think most teachers want their students to nurture themselves Mm. and just through using something like an advanced version of the pose or the mm. full expression of the mm-hmm. pose it just mm. kind of sets up this mm. expectation that that's what you're meant to be working towards mm.
1: well it also suggests that there is a perfect pose yeah you know mm. even to say you're the full expression of the pose or the perfect pose or the ultimate pose i uh- have that's scary yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah i will say too about inviting people to be kind and gentle and then i not only reflect on them to sort of check in and be curious about what's happening for them in their body but also what's happening for them with their breath and in their mind mm-hmm. you know where does it take them when they're asked to be gentle mm, it's back you to that experiential yeah, absolutely yeah. 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 yeah and the multi-dimensionality of who we are as we are in the world yeah. yeah absolutely what does the
2: little voice in my head say when i'm asking to be gentle to myself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, not me. I don't deserve that.
1: <laughs> I'm being lazy. Or, yeah.
2: Can you take us through some of the differences in communication for a one-on-one session to a group session? And I've heard many teachers express that they don't really feel ready to teach a private session while they are comfortable leading a group. Do you think there is a different set of skills or
1: deeper knowledge required to teach one-on-one?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I do think that there are different communication skills that that are required, absolutely. But having said that, when you're teaching a group class, you are still frequently having Mm one-on-one interactions with your students before or after the class, or even as you walk around within the class, you may have a significant one-on-one moment or minute with one of your students. So one-on-one communication is important if you're only a class teacher still, but what will differentiate what skills are really required will be a lot determined by the context of the one-on-one session. So in our book, we've broadly broken the context down to three kinds of one-on-one sessions. So the first one is where somebody comes to you for basically a private class. So you're the teacher, they're the student, you're guiding them, they're following what you ask them to do more or less. Obviously, because it's only one, you're able to tailor it enormously and uh, not just whatever post choices or pranayam choices you have, but also how you're saying it and how long you hold and all those sorts of things. But it's still sort of teacher guiding. The second one-on-one is where they're coming to you to help create a personalized practice. And so typically that can take, we can take whatever it takes because every student is different, but you would usually have two or three four sessions. So the first session is really understanding what they're looking for in their personal practice. And then maybe they'll take home something that they'll practice with, play around with, experiment with, that's my favorite word, for a week or two, and then come back and meet with you again. And then you start to work to co-create a practice. So that's another type of session. And then the next would be, say, yoga therapy. And in the the latter of those two, I would say the communication skills that are, are really important are listening skills and using powerful questions and we spent a lot of time uh, both in our book and in my training we spent a lot of time in those areas and it's interesting sort of it's kind of a chicken and egg question so what's more important is it more important to have really great questions or is it more important to be a really great listener well, you can have the best questions in the world, but if you're not listening, then <laughs> that doesn't help. But if you don't, if you're not listening and the, your student, your client doesn't feel that they're being heard Yeah, if heard you're not right, in asking the right questions to right, exactly. bring it out. Right, Bring out, yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're hand in glove um, skills. And what we find is that for all of this, it begins with awareness of what you're currently doing. And what makes up all of these skills can be broken down into component parts. So for example, with listening, we talk about the levels of listening that one can listen at. We talk about the barriers to listening or or listening blocks. And then we talk about ways of listening. So those are things to kind of know intellectually first and then to start to practice. And so we do a whole heap of exercises that help you start to practice all of those things. Then with questions, there are types of questions. So there are are questions, I mean, the most basic are open-ended and closed-ended questions. And at the most simplistic level, people say, well, closed-ended questions are bad because they just shut you down. But actually sometimes a closed-ended question is really a useful tool because you want to get a very focused and definitive answer from somebody. So you might want to use that as a tool. And they're the basic building blocks and then follow-up questions. And then we have a couple of chapters on questions, (laughs) so you can look them all up. And they're really worth practicing with. So what I want to say before about about languaging applies for questions and listening as well. In our book, we have these active action words and then experiential words. And when I was regularly doing a lot of class teaching, once I picked a theme for my class, I would then go to my word list and think, are there words that would really lend themselves suit themselves to the theme that I'm going to be teaching with and if there were and particularly if they were words I didn't regularly use what I would do is write them down in a bright color on my Class notes, and so I could see them or have reviewed them before I go into class and start trying to use new words in my vocabulary.
2: Oh, and it's almost like you're setting an intention for that class as well, just
1: with those Absolutely. words. And the, the words are in the book. That yeah, right. and the words that can yeah. choose them from the book. Yeah, and there's lots of theme ideas in the book as well, which we didn't even touch on. And this is the same with questions as well. So you know, if you're if you set yourself a communication goal of wanting to become more effective at asking questions, given you're in relationship with people. Or you have an idea maybe of what's going to happen in the session you might say to yourself oh, I think I'm going to try this kind of questioning approach or this kind of listening approach differently and you know make a note of that to yourself to practice it and we would tend to recommend that you try to practice one new thing at a time not ten <laughs> yeah. and then you know then bring that into your get that into your sort of muscle memory as it were and then go on to your next so
2: And so Mm. it seems like the listening is a really key skill for you. Would Mm. you recommend not a really lengthy new client form that puts a whole lot of questions in written form? Or do you think that that can Mm. be useful for, say, communicators who take Mm. a little bit more time to think about things and express Mm. more writing down than what they do in person?
1: Mm. Great, great question. I think... Both can be effective. The other aspect that's a a big difference when you get to the latter two kinds of one-on-one sessions that we were talking about is that if you don't have rapport with the person, you can have the best questions in the world. and You can be a great listener, but if they don't trust you, they don't like you, they don't feel safe. They're not going to tell you the answer. To, you know, they're not going to answer the questions. Mm. So, they're that's sort of the third hand in the hand and glove kind of thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, good I analogy. Think well, so. um, but yes. yeah, building knowing, you know, having that rapport. So that's the difference. When you have a questionnaire, you haven't typically you've either got no relationship or very little relationship. Mm. So what they're going to write on a form will will be you know the really that high level stuff and that can be good because that can be a start of the conversation but it's then you know digging down and going deeper and deeper which is only possible when you have rapport mm. <laughs> so and no one yeah. really
0: likes filling out forms anyway. So.
2: <laughs> yeah. 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 oh yeah. i teach a class to lawyers mm. they are the best form filler outers mm. that new client form for yeah, that right. group was so helpful yeah, it was un- great yeah
1: understanding your audience i mean and, and that's That's the thing. I mean, it doesn't hurt to offer it if there's somebody who does like to fill out forms.
2: (laughs) And it was really handy because it was a group of 20 new people and they actually had quite a few different injuries and different goals with that practice. So it was really good to have all of those really well answered new Mm. client forms. Just to think about how I was going to plan
1: that class. Mm, mm. The other thing too is it's not only what people say when they answer a question it's how they mm. answer it and and so you know we talk about in terms of how you listen is listening with all your senses and so you you may ask somebody a question and they'll give you a, a short answer, but you sense somewhere either in your gut or you know something in their body language that there's more to it then definitely move into asking more questions follow up questions you know is there anything more that mm. is there another is there any other aspect of that that's affected you has that helped you in your life or whatever it might be
2: mm. Mm. and this is great for those initial listening sessions i also mm. loved how you transitioned into the concept of the yoga conversation mm. where especially if you do teach a lot of one-on-ones it's quite easy to kind of chit chat for an hour mm. so you had some really good like compassionate i hear you phrases that then just flow on into and we're mm. going to start the class mm. do you want to take us through the concept of the yoga conversation and some of the languaging that can be helpful to kind of have
1: that balance of keep things on track, but also –
2: hear the person
1: yeah so in the book we talk about a yoga conversation versus a social conversation yeah and so the difference there is in the yoga conversation is you're there entirely for them yeah and so a ratio I used to work with in sales is you should be listening 80% of the time and talking 20% of the time and I think that absolutely applies here so you need to be listening but at the same time there is this whole piece about who people like and people tend to like people they are like. <laughs> so, <laughs> very complicated. And so you often want to share a little bit about yourself so that they feel that you're – yeah, so it's not like impersonal. Them. So it's yeah. not impersonal, exactly. So there's a feel, a little bit of a give and take, but you just need to be very wary of the ratio of time and then be ready to redirect very you know, a- appropriately so that you can be asking and learning more about as much as you can about them as a whole person. And it's interesting, uh, particularly in the yoga therapy communication skills training that I do, you know, we work a lot with role plays and I have trainees who will move into, so tell me about your back problem, like two minutes into the conversation. And it's a 20 minute role play, you know, there can be many minutes, role plays are exaggerated in their nature, but many minutes getting to know who they are as a person and who they even are on that day, how they are in that moment you know, is important. So uh, the biggest differentiation is, I guess, that a yoga communication is it's about them. It's not about you at all, but there is a sharing quality in it as well. I guess one example from the book I loved, because sometimes people
2: know they're there for yoga and Mm -hmm. you'll kind of say, oh, so how did your day go? And they'll Mm -hmm. launch into quite a long explanation of all the things that have gone wrong Mm -hmm. in that day. And you just get the sense that maybe it's not going to serve them to continue to scroll back through everything mm. that went wrong that mm. day so you had a beautiful phrase or something like oh so it sounds like you've had a tough day mm.
1: let's do some breathing and do some gentle practices yes, yeah. and so that's what i was talking about redirecting yeah yes, yeah and making that judgment call when it's appropriate to intervene and say something compassionate and acknowledging where they are and now let's move into the next let's talk about the next thing or i have another question and depending you might want to say maybe we move on So sometimes it's about asking permission to move on. The other thing that's worth mentioning that is, I guess, part of the rapport building is appreciating people's different communication styles. So there are people who are very direct and to the point and they will tend to give you really short answers and they're not being rude and they're not not being open. That's just how they are. And then there's people who are more analytical and very detail focused. And they can't not give you lots of information because that's how they process and that's how they think. And then there's people who, are, you know, so there's this different style. So it's appreciating that is possible. And the popul- the human population is divided into the four different styles from all the analysis that's been done. And also appreciating your style too. So if you're with somebody who's a very different style to yours, that can be some of the most exciting part for your development to tailor yourself to be more like them. And so if you're, for example, somebody who tends to be more direct and to the point, but you're with somebody who really likes to go on a lot, you may have to listen to yourself as you intervene because you think that you're redirecting in a nice way, but they could think that you're actually cutting them off. And how you might know that is again not so much what they say, but it's really you have to be totally present and aware, awake to what's happening for them.
2: Okay. I guess as yeah. so I would have that self awareness to kind of, I guess, take a beat mm. before you just say those words. Absolutely. And mm. so, another interesting communication styles nuance mm. is I do like a lot of one on one and really small group sessions. And it's a very different feeling in my little home studio to say I'm teaching at a huge gym and one person shows up. Mm. And often that one person who shows up, like you can just tell they feel like a bit awkward and a bit self-conscious and like Mm. almost bad for being there. So how do you create an intimate energy in a big space and with someone who... Wasn't expecting
1: a one on one session. Right. Yeah, I have heard that happen to me. What I would suggest is you actually ask them. What I have said is I was expecting more people here today and they're not, and I have planned a class. But so we had two choices we could either go with that, and I'm really happy to do that, or Let's talk about you and see what might serve you best today. How are you? And then start what ends up being a kind of a, a one-on-one designing a personal practice for them mm. for that day. And when you transition into it slowly like that and you give them a choice, that I found helps to have them feel And I guess that's just
2: acknowledging what's happening as well. Mm. So, well, here we are. Here we are, yeah. yeah. I
1: expected more, but, wow! look, they're, they're on. The other thing you can think about too is where you position your mats. So you may sort of go off and be diagonally in a corner or something like that. You may sort of construct things so they don't feel... So you're not like up on the, the stage. stage. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely not up on the stage. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. I've also found as well some people feel more comfortable, especially an experienced student who maybe doesn't like a lot of eyes on them who mm-hmm. were coming for their own internal space. Sometimes i mm-hmm. will say, do you want me to just do the practice with you mm-hmm. and we can just do it together? Mm-hmm. And often people Great, yeah, absolutely, more comfortable with that. Yes.
1: And sometimes they're really glad to go, oh, okay, now I can go and do the three jobs I needed to do anyway. <laughs> and I just meant maybe this class wasn't meant to happen for them. And that's cool too.
2: The challenging part of these kind of one-on-one conversations is when there are personal or professional boundaries and scope of practice involved and kind of finding that balance between compassion for your student, but also like self-care and professional responsibility For yourself, say, Mm -hmm. for example, like a student is really going through something and they want to talk to you about it, but Mm -hmm. you actually feel like it's something for a psychologist or a counsellor. It's a huge topic and obviously depending Mm -hmm. on the situation and the person, but have you got Mm -hmm. any strategies navigating through situations
1: yeah like that yeah a few suggestions yeah around that I think first of all is to recognize that there are professional boundaries and then there are personal boundaries and it's been my experience that the majority of yoga teachers are not actually aware of their professional boundaries and it's written on the yoga Australia website there are other resources out there so I highly recommend that people know that but to some extent even worse most teachers have not thought about their personal boundaries and, uh, and so we actually have a, a section in the book to encourage people to do this to you know start by thinking about what are their personal values and what's important to them and then how does that inform what might be their boundaries so what are things that they are comfortable with people doing or not doing or saying or not saying and thinking about those boundaries and when you get to a point where you are perhaps needing to talk about boundaries, that would sort of go under the category of what we would call challenging com- situations or conversations. Absolutely. Yeah. And our suggestion around that is to do it as soon as possible. <laughs> right? Usually the longer you leave it, the worse it like becomes. the more
2: uncomfortable the situation exactly. is. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And depending on how big the transgression is, so to speak, you may sort of manage the or or prepare the listener to receive. So we're talking about those three stages. And and so you might say, "Um, Joe, can we talk for a few minutes after class today? And you say, of course, Lucy. And uh, and I'd say, I want to talk to you about something. And I, I have to be honest, I'm feeling a little uncomfortable about it. And so you actually lead into it by acknowledging how you feel and so they're already going, oh, God, you feel uncomfortable. And you say, what I've noticed is, you know, X, Y, and Z happens. And that's really outside my scope of practice. And I would really recommend that you see, you work with some, I'm sure there's this X, Y, Z, whatever person you think will better serve them. And you make that suggestion. And, and I know when you spoke to Janet, she talked about having professional. Yeah, <laughs> references. yeah. I mean, I think she said it all there very beautifully. When it's a personal boundary, it's that's actually sometimes feels harder to say. Yeah.
2: Definitely, because um, it's not a laid out scope of practice. No. This is not my role as a no. yoga teacher. This is just. Oh, I'm feeling a bit uncomfortable yeah. with this as a person.
1: Yes. And that's so yeah, and
2: it's so key what you said about. Well, know what your own
1: personal boundaries right. are,
2: because otherwise, mm.
1: how is anyone else going to have a clue what they are? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And and often that's all you need to do is have them, and then you start to you know communicate them because you have them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're clear about them, yeah. and so yeah. people feel them. I've I have them. another point about
2: this yeah. as well mm-hmm. with personal boundaries yes. because. Yes running a business from your home, Mm. it's really easy to get sucked into being available for people at all times and Mm. answering that text message that arrives at like 10.30 on a Sunday night or answering emails then. Mm. And then you just set up the expectation that you're available then. You allow it to happen. Yeah, that message can wait for business hours. But if you
1: answer it there and then, you're just inviting messages at that time. Absolutely. The (laughs) other thing I want to say is that also your personal boundaries are your personal boundaries and mine are mine, and they're not good or bad or right or wrong. So for example, particularly once you start working privately, there are, for example, boundaries about payment, you know, there are some people who uh, payment must be up front and if it's not in the bank account, then the session's not on. There's others where there's a sort of a tacit agreement that maybe you just pay on the day and if you haven't got enough money, don't worry about it. There's others if you don't you know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah. so when you start talking about personal boundaries, but then you talk about you know bringing in money or cancellations or those sorts of things you really want to have thought through that and we do have a section on that because often yoga teachers as you mentioned they start off with class teaching and then they transition into one-on-one and and that can be where the wheels fall off for some people because they haven't thought through some of those kinds of logistics especially around things like cancellations if it's just spelled out from the beginning then it's just clear for everyone yeah Yeah. and those things are great to have in writing
2: yeah (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) really good yeah
2: can you take us through some of the other communication challenges that might arise as a yoga teacher? I think it's one of the reasons why this book is such a great resource because it's often those challenging situations that make us really doubt ourselves as teachers and like wondered if we've handled them well, especially if they take us by surprise. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there's no one to ask or when you're doing your teacher training, there's a teacher there, there's a whole other group of people there. And I guess If you Mm -hmm. have a mentor, that's a really helpful situation Mm -hmm. to bring to a mentor.
1: Mm. so we would absolutely encourage every yoga teacher to have a mentor um, and, and then they may see it may be a mentor on call kind of thing it's not a necessarily an absolutely you know regular I guess it's um, just someone who you know that you can go to if one of those challenging right. things does happen right right there's also your peers as well I mean yeah, you can yeah. make a call to somebody have you ever dealt with this what did you do you know and then once you start working though as a yoga therapist we think you should have a supervisor so that you have much more formal and regular uh, and that's that's very important. And we talk about the difference between being mentored and being supervised it's kind of almost a professional responsibility that you have someone to go to so so you can have the best possible information or, or answers for your students but when a challenging situation happens like in the moment typically they're because of a mismatch of some sort. So maybe you have said something and they've heard it in a particular way, and then there's tension of some sort. And what's easy to do is to either become defensive or to be confused and just have no clue what to do. So what we always recommend, the first thing you do is you breathe. You pause. Such great. Yeah, <laughs> okay. And and even to the point where, let's say, you said something to me like, Lucy, what are you talking about? Why did you say to do that? I'd say, let's take a moment. And both take a moment and say, I'm not quite clear what you're upset about could you just explain it to me again? So just already I've de-escalated a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. And then you would say it again. And then I might realise it's because I've said something and you've heard it differently or I've said it wrong and I misspoke. You know, that could be the reason. So breathing is always very helpful, taking poor time. Um, the second time that people often get into... Oh, and by the way, that sorry, that example doesn't happen very often because yoga teachers, of course, are beautiful and wonderful. And <laughs> <laughs> but I think that example of just asking or yes what always asking yeah Yeah. so breathe and ask breathe Mm. and ask Mm. so which is the other thing is that sometimes what yoga teachers feel are challenging situations is when they're asked a question they don't know the answer to. Mm. Okay. So it might be, so Ryan, if you came to me and you said, so what do you think I should do now that that, you know, I've post this surgery that I've had for my stomach cancer mm. and, and I'm like, I'm <laughs> my I've never worked with somebody with that kind of surgery. And I, you know, and I don't write anything about your diet and I don't know anything about what else you're doing in your life. You know, I'd say, that's a great question. I'd, I'd need to know a whole lot more about you. You know, so I, mm pause and then I ask a question and rather than freak out so it's not a challenging situation it's an opportunity to learn I found as well like most people who do
2: come in with unusual medical conditions I'm more than happy to explain
1: it to yes, you. Yes, yes, yes. The other kinds of questions teachers feel uncomfortable with is where somebody might say, is this a religion, you know, and there's mm. a, that kind of question or, you know, what do you know about this? Or it's sort of the kind of almost like a slightly confronting kind of question. Mm. And then same thing, just you don't have to respond immediately. Or maybe In like no you were saying earlier, maybe respond. that's
2: just that direct
1: communicator asking what they, they
2: think is just an interesting question. Yeah. It feels like an affront if yeah. you're a... Yeah. Very, fairy
1: flowery communicator. So why do you think it's a religion? Where did you hear that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and get it, yes, yeah, so that's another thing is sort of meeting like with like. That's true too. Yeah, you don't want to be too passive and gentle. If somebody is agitated, that's not a good idea either. Say you don't have a mentor in your life, what are some good ways about going
2: about finding one if there's just not a logical person who you see in that light? And if there is like a logical person who say mm-hmm. your regular teacher and maybe you do want to go to them for mentoring. Mm-hmm. Do you just ask them? Mm-hmm. Will you be my mentor? Mm-hmm. Or you
1: know? Yeah. Well, um, there are kind of different levels of mentoring, if you like. So peer mentoring would be if you rang up a friend and said, you know, what do you think? This is what happened for me. Then there's, well, many yoga training programs you're assigned a mentor. So that might be somebody that you've established a close relationship. So you might call them and say, my training's finished, but I'd really like to keep working with you. And then you have a conversation about what the what the fees are and, and very upfront about it and everybody knows where they stand. But who's the right person for you, who's the right mentor for you can change over time. So who was right for you during your training program may not be who will best support you in the next phase. Or if you're transitioning from class teaching into one-on-one, you might want somebody who has a lot of experience in teaching one-on-one, for example. So... Um, Seeking a mentor, the Yoga Australia is putting together a mentor registry. So that would be the first place I'd recommend here in Australia is contact them and ask them for names. And they're all highly experienced teachers. And that's one option. Another would be to go to your yoga training school and ask them for the names of, of other mentors and reach out to them and, and say, I'm looking for a mentor. And what is really good is if you can be really clear as a mentee what it is you're looking for. Because I've had people come to me and say, I'd love you to be my mentor, and I've had a conversation with them and I'm not the right person for them. You know, it does seem like what they're looking for is a yeah, a different somebody who has a different kind of experience to mine. And it seems like as well there's people who
2: are very much on the business side of things. Mm -hmm. And then there's other people that are more about the support mm-hmm. and
1: mm-hmm. so I, I had a I worked with a teacher who graduated had been graduated for a few years and lived in the country and had taught not sort of one class a week not a lot and wasn't didn't feel really confident as a teacher and didn't have resources around her so she reached out to me and we worked over Skype and what we found was number one we went back to a little bit about how she planned her classes so i said at the beginning it's not so much what you say it's how you say it but if you've planned what you're going to say to some extent it's much easier to say it in a more effective way <laughs> mm, and you've got sense. something to yeah. fall back on if the you words aren't flowing yeah. yeah you've got your structure and so we went through that, and then we started talking about working with themes. And for her, that really built her confidence as a teacher. And she was then able to go away and practice with those, and then report back to me, and or share it with me. I'm report back, <laughs> share, share how that went, and then ask questions and become curious and so forth. So, I mean, there can be lots of different reasons for mentoring. You mentioned about business mentoring. I think that's a different. That's a different realm. subject. Yeah, that's a different. subject. a lot subject. of that is. Mm-hmm
2: say you're on Facebook or something mm-hmm. a lot of those are the more prominent people because I guess yeah. that's the field that they work yeah. in so those are the ads that you see yeah. <laughs> so you know like I oh, guess I need a mentor this person's really great on Instagram mm-hmm. like I think it's really good to kind of be clear about what you want from your mentor and mm-hmm.
1: like you said Mm. have that conversation see Mm -hmm. if that's really what they're about absolutely yeah and then you may be really satisfied with with the support you're receiving for a period of time and then it might be time to move on to your next mentor and that would be a good conversation to have with your mentor (laughs) (laughs) really seriously yeah you know if they, they should be I mean anyone who's a yoga teacher mentor wants only the best for their mentees you know then they can recommend on to another person so there's a chapter in the book about mentoring as well because that's definitely something you don't learn at teacher training yeah yeah it's a wonderful relationship i mean it's probably my favorite work yeah is mentoring i love the training and i love coaching communications and so forth but seeing teachers evolve in their teaching and always in themselves as people is just so heartwarming oh it's so mm -hmm. lovely I'm grateful to do that work, yeah. Another Mm. chapter
2: in the book which I think is so important and necessary is the importance of self-care. And it's another huge topic, but could you take us through some of the key points and maybe even just articulating what self-care means?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm. It's absolutely critical because if you're not in a good place, in a good state of body, mind, and spirit, then how can you be present? You know, which is the, the start point for for teaching, for being a yoga teacher or a yoga therapist. So I, I think it's a sort of you owe it to your te- to your students and your clients. And to yourself. Uh Right. And you totally owe it to yourself. I mean, particularly with all the health issues that I've been challenged with in the last many years, it's become my catch cry, which is to love and accept myself exactly as I am and to support myself in the ways that I need to be supported. And it's very different to the way you do or you do. I mean, we're all very different. And so it's a matter of becoming curious about what best supports you. And then a little bit like your own personal values, work out what is your personal self care regime? So I have some self-care practices that would not suit another person but they they work for me you know like I take 10 minute micro naps <laughs> I took one in the library before I oh <laughs> you're like a napping pro if you can do it in a public place I did I did, I did. I, I'm a pro I mean I have a, I actually work with my breath it's probably a sort of more of a guided internal meditation but I think I slept <laughs> well definitely you I got the benefits
2: self-care. of yes nap.
1: <laughs> I did I did so self-care is it, it can be physical it can be mental emotional and spiritual I mean my personal practice is part of my self-care and and something that that Jill and I both believe very strongly is to be you know a truly present effective teacher is to have a daily practice a personal practice and that changes over time as well I I think think
2: that can be a really interesting one because Mm -hmm. sometimes say, as a teacher, Mm -hmm. you've had a longer or more intense physical practice and then other things change in your life and you don't have the time or the energy of that practice, it's easy to feel really guilty Mm -hmm. that you're not being a good yogi when Mm -hmm. maybe the yoga that day is a yoga nidra or a meditation rather than a physical practice.
1: Yeah, I, I I would tell you that five days out of seven, my personal practice is supine. And, you know, whether it's body sensing, whether it's a full yoga nidra, whether it's a breath practice, but it's supine because I have so many physical challenges in my body. And that took a mentor to point that out to me. So I have a, a beautiful mentor at the moment. I'm hugely blessed. And And I was talking to him about how one of my issues is I have chronic migraines. And so I was talking to him about my frustration with everything being so good in my life, more or less, and yet I'm still getting these migraines. And so he was asking me about my life and about my my morning practice and about my teaching I said well you know I get up at 5 30 and then I go for a walk I do my asana on the I'm right near Sydney Harbour so I'm very blessed and then I do japa while I'm you know prayer beads as I I do my walk and then I come back and I do my pranayama and then I'm meditation and he was like really he said okay he said what I'd like you to do is all of that however I want you to do it in a supine position just in front of your altar and Seriously. And that's, for me at the moment in my life with what I'm dealing with, five days out of seven, my daily practice is super. (laughs) And that's self-care. So it varies enormously.
0: And I guess it also feeds into setting up those personal boundaries that you talked about earlier as well. Mm -hmm. Knowing that this is where my boundaries are, means I can sort of shut out or partition off things that are outside of that and be more effective where... I need to be. Mm. That i was makes saying sense. this
1: is my time. This
0: is yeah. my time. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. I learned that really early on. So if you remember, I mentioned in the late as uh, sort of 2009, I learned this practice and I did it every day for 90 days. So I created this place in our house at the time where I went to do my morning practice, and usually it was six in the morning, but sometimes it was at different times. And so I sta- and I still had relatively young kids at that stage, and so it became known that Mummy was going to do her breathing practice and I didn't get want to get too woo-woo with what it was I just called it a breathing practice and they got to know that and since then I've trained my family from a very now quite a young age for a long time that when I'm doing my practice they don't interrupt me you know they don't and so everybody's trainable (laughs) kids young kids can be that your students can be but you have to decide what you and you absolutely deserve it and should you know self-care is critical
0: Lucy has been extremely generous to offer us a copy of her amazing book for us to give away, and we are going to just have one question that you can answer on the website. We'll have a link in the show notes that you can go and visit, but would you like to Tell us what the question is, please, Lucy. Okay.
1: So if I may give a context, a little context to the question. When you're acquiring a new skill or honing an existing skill, what is absolutely been shown to be the case, doesn't matter what the skill is, is people move through levels of competency. Um, And again, we expand on this in the book. But the four levels, the first level is where you are unconsciously incompetent. And so that's when you don't know what you don't know. So that's pretty easy comfortable the next is when you start trying to do something so whether it's learning to play tennis or play the flute or a new language or teach yoga um, and you start to learn that skill you start to realize what you don't know and so that's when you become consciously incompetent and there can be some discomfort with that and that's great that's part of the growth Where you wanna get to is to the point where you are consciously competent. So you know what to do for how long, with what force, et cetera, et cetera. Again, whatever the skill might be. And so in all the work that we do in the training and in the coaching is we encourage people to become conscious about what they're doing and hopefully competent about what they're doing. There is a fourth level, which is once you've practiced and you're really good at it and done it a lot, you become unconsciously competent and that's fabulous. But even when you're super competent at something, there are times you'll pick up that you may, something's not going right and you may need to come back into being consciously competent. So it's the most important level. And so part of being consciously competent as a communicator is knowing what you're doing well. So that's my question. My question is, what is one thing you do well when communicating with your students or clients? Such a good question. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, because then of course you can repeat it and keep doing it, and it's very positive. So whether it's classes or one on one, that's part of being consciously and a conscious communicator, mm. self
2: care and self compassion, mm. and <laughs> yes. like just knowing yourself. Yeah, mm. yeah.
0: Mm. I guess this is an extra question, but you said at the beginning you'd split your book up into two. Mm. Like, how did you go about deciding what would be in first book and what had to wait
1: so the other two sections that are in the the next book are and we haven't decided the title of the book but it's something like sharing what you know and love so it's for yoga teachers who perhaps have been teaching a bit longer and they're ready to start Uh, doing presentations so whether they're speaking at a conference or they're going to some kind of rotary club or whatever they're talking about yoga or their type of yoga so for different presentation situations or speeches and then for people who want to design and run workshops and then within workshops we we sort of break it down into skills-based workshops knowing doing workshops and then more transformational workshops and so the second book will give a lot of same focus. It's the mm-hmm. communication of how to do that effectively. So the planning, the organisation, and then a lot around the delivery. Oh, awesome. so good because yeah. that's
2: definitely something you don't do
1: in teacher training. No, mm-hmm. no, it's no. Like-
2: no. No. Next level. It's a more, it's more yeah. advanced. So it
1: is, yeah, and Jill and I are both really yeah. excited about that. And I've, I've actually ran earlier this year a, a faculty training program to hone the skills of all of the teachers and the faculty of the Yoga Institute in the, both the teacher training and the yoga therapy training. And it was fun for me to experiment with some of this information, which is, again, d- deeply steeped in all the Rojan wisdom, but further developed and grown from Jill's and my experience, and, and particularly my experience in designing and running workshops. Both knowing, doing, and transformational workshops, so yeah we're excited to start working on that <laughs> there's too much to do it's good to hear as well that you're not yeah. feeling depleted after your first book oh no energized the yeah. importance yeah. of self-care yeah. oh no if I can just give a shout out can I do that okay. yeah Absolutely. yeah Jill Danks is a phenomenal human being and she and I'm going to get teary but you know I mentioned that I wrangle with chronic migraine she could not have been more loving and supportive and honoring of my needs and my care needs she made me be better at self-care. <laughs> she made me be a better person. A, like, oh, routine. She too. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, she really did. She's a she's an exemplar of self-care. Yeah. And yeah, so no, we're we're really nourished and uh and excited by this. So yeah. That
0: brings mm. us on to pick of the week. Mm-hmm. So would you like to start, Joe?
2: Yeah, my pick of the week is a nature documentary series we've been watching on Netflix called Wild Japan. And we've been loving it. Firstly because mm-hmm. I didn't know how diverse Japan's different ecosystems are like there's there's animals that migrated from siberia up in the north and then there's subtropical coral reefs on other islands and it's really beautifully shot and we found it's a nice winding down thing to watch Mm. at the end of the day for a good night's sleep Mm
1: -hmm. and sort of netflix
2: Netflix. Mm -hmm. yeah It's
1: cool. also Wild
2: China, which we're just starting on. And <laughs> this, this, yeah, there's a whole series when we're done with Wild Japan. <laughs> yeah,
0: I think all of a sudden nature documentaries is just our thing. <laughs> <laughs> my pick is it's a recent episode of the Jay Brown podcast. And I really love the Jay Brown podcast. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite podcasts, let alone yoga podcasts. And this one was his interview with Tara Stiles which I found very interesting. And even at the beginning, he talked about how he sort of resented her for her fame and and success. success. And he actually, you know, he spoke with her about that and admitted that to her, and she was actually very accepting and not surprised. But she actually seemed very down-to-earth and just happened to have a very interesting career path that sort of went in quite a meteoric direction. But... I, I guess I really love the way that Jay Brown teases out someone's story as someone who's trying to do a podcast himself. It was, it was a really interesting learning experience for me. And I guess it fits into that whole communication mm-hmm. category. I've
1: got two picks. Oh, you <laughs> as many picks as you like. I've got 17 picks you know. <laughs> <laughs> I've got two. Uh, 15 um, limits. <laughs> so. Okay. Okay. My first is a book, which I actually listened to though. So I don't know what the category that is. Brenna Brown's latest book uh, I love her stuff I've loved a lot of it over the years but I think this one is a particularly excellent text so it's called Braving the Wilderness and Do you know who she is? Do you know who I'm talking about?
2: Vulnerability. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. shame,
1: vulnerability. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you Google her uh, on YouTube, you'll find, or in TED Talks, that's where Mm -hmm. she first sort of went viral in around 2012, talking about vulnerability and shame. But she's continued to write a lot. She's a social researcher and she's a, a very engaging speaker and great communicator as well. But in this book, she talks about the reality of what's happening in society at the moment, um, which is pretty sad in the sense of the amount of loneliness and isolation and separateness that people are feeling. And um, and she, you know, has a lot of background research that supports what she's saying. So it's not just sort of an opinion piece; it's you know really validated. And for example, she talks about the difference between loneliness and not feeling like you belong anywhere I found that so incredibly you know sad to know of it and to think about them as as separate and I think that's where yoga is amazing because yoga classes can offer a sangha you know a community and Mm -hmm. have people feel that they really belong somewhere and that's what we as yoga teachers can really offer Mm -hmm. I mean there's so much in the book that's it's very very rich and I've got lots of ideas I want to ring her and say I've got some ideas of different ways (laughs) so I'd recommend that so Brené Brown's Braving the Wilderness, and the other is actually probably the first podcast that I ever listen to regularly, and it's called On Being with Krista Tippett. Have mm-hmm. you heard of it? It's on it? my subscription list. Oh, is yeah, it? Okay, yeah. you already know. Not until tell, though. Well, uh, what I love about her, she's she's an excellent interviewer, and she's a radio journalist, mm-hmm. and she came from years of radio. When I lived in America, I listened to to national public radio and her programs and so forth. So she's she's been around a long time. She now runs her own business, I guess, called On Being with podcasts and, and blogs. And so forth, and what I love about it is that she interviews such a wide range of people—sort of leaders in thinking, of and you know spiritual people, poets, and research. She interviewed Brené Brown; that's a good one to listen to as well. Mm-hmm. John O'Donohue is a beautiful poet, musicians—you know—all a wide range of people. And, and what I love about it is when I'm listening, I so frequently hear the teachings of the sutras in the conversations that she's having and I'm always likening what I'm hearing is these really wise people saying things going but that's in the sutras you know that's it. some of these fruits are so universal so they're so mm-hmm. universal that's exactly right you know there is many paths to union the divine whatever your you know end game is as there are people in the world and and so it's it's wonderful to hear it, different people talking about it in different ways and in lots of ways still saying the same thing
0: thank you so much thank you so much Lucy Uh, it's
1: been been lovely to meet you I've been listening to you and now I've met you face to face (laughs) and that's where real relationships happen absolutely (laughs) (laughs) now we're bonded for life
0: (laughs) I'm really glad we had this conversation with Lucy I learnt a lot during this episode and I learnt a lot from her book there's a lot of stuff I've already taken into my own teaching so I really hope this book does well I hope lot of people go out and buy it and as i said at the beginning this is probably going to be used in a lot of teacher training so Well done to both Lucy Kanani and Jill Danks on such a great achievement. Just a reminder, you can enter in our competition to win a copy. Just go to podcast.flowartist.com and you'll find a link there to enter the competition and get in the draw. We will announce the winner in our next episode, which will come out in a fortnight. And speaking of our next episode, we have a great guest it is Nicole Lee, the founder of Qi Space, And she'll tell us about how she went from working in real estate in Dubai to teaching Qigong in Melbourne. So look out for that one. Just like to say, the theme song of this podcast is Baby Robots by Ghost Soul. He is such an awesome guy for letting his users music. So please go to GoSoul.PangCamp.com and buy it. I'll see you in a fortnight. Big, big love.